I'm Jeremy. I've been married to Jen, my wife, for all of seven months. We got married last summer. Um, thank you. People always do have that response. There was clap and things like that. And um, yeah, anyway. So um, yeah, so we've we after we got married, we moved to uh, Kennington to be part of Grace London, the church here. And then um, we're yeah, we're just really grateful to be part of the family here. And really feel like we've built some really great friendships and feel like we can learn a lot from. Um, Lots of you guys. So yeah, um, let's look at the Bible now. Um, We're going to look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 to 38. So that is um, page 1435 in the church Bibles. Okay, Um, yeah, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 to 38. Has everyone got that? And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, for they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Okay, great. So today we're starting in the middle of Matthew's gospel, in the middle of Matthew's account of Jesus' life. And we find ourselves joining the story at verse 35. And I'll just read it again to you. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. This verse is a little bit like um, the beginning of a TV drama where you get uh, the kind of an update of the highlights of the previous episodes. So you get a kind of summary of what's been going on in Matthew's gospel up to this point. Now, it's very easy to skip over this verse, and perhaps you're familiar with Jesus, or you've kind of, you, know he's a bit of a, a, you know he's a teacher and he's a healer, so you think, well, I kind of already know this. But I think it's important that we just take a moment to dig into this verse and see, remind ourselves, really, of what Jesus has been doing before we go on to look at his encounter um, with the crowd. So firstly, we see that Jesus has been going from town to town teaching the people. And as he does this, a crowd has started to follow him. Why why are they doing that? Because they're astonished by the power of his teaching and the authority with which he teaches. Um, Earlier in chapter 7, we hear this. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, some of you may have been here when we were doing a a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, so you might have heard that teaching already. I don't don't have time to share that with us now. But basically, what does it mean when it talks about teaching as one who had authority and not as their scribes? Basically, it's saying Jesus is not like any ordinary teacher. He's not just giving good advice or moral wisdom for us, but his teaching points back to himself as the one who has authority, the one who has the right to direct and define our lives. Jesus is making a bold claim here, not like if you think about other religious figures like Muhammad or Buddha or the Sikh gurus, they might point to another authority, but Jesus is pointing to himself and says, I am the authority. I am the one to be followed. Um, I didn't uh, grow up a Christian. I became a Christian when I was 20 at university, but I started to read the accounts of Jesus' life um, in my teenage years, and I felt exactly what I feel what, what this passage is talking about. As I read the account of Jesus' life and I read the stories that Jesus told, I thought he had such an incredible authority about him that he drew the stories back to himself. I, I wanted him to tell me about me, but instead he kept drawing it back to himself. So we see this picture of Jesus teaching, of demonstrating his authority, and drawing huge crowds following him. 
Just as people are struck by his, his words, we also see that people are struck by the power of his actions. The second thing that Jesus has been doing, he's been going around the towns and villages, healing people, changing people's lives, transforming even their physical circumstances. And in the previous chapter, we've seen miracle after miracle. Jesus heals the centurion's servant from being paralyzed, heals a man suffering with leprosy, heals two men possessed by demons. He even prays to bring a girl back from the dead. This naturally has an incredible response from the crowds. And just imagine for a moment if this was in, in central London, in Covent Garden. Think if Jesus was healing people right there, how many people would be flocking, the crowds would be going there and probably bringing their sick. And this is exactly what we f- find in this um, account. Um, the crowds are saying things like, never was anything like this seen in Israel. So they've never seen anything like this before. And people, it's generating huge attention and people are bringing their sick to him. Even... Um, even to the point where people start bringing their sick to Jesus from as far afield as Syria. This is in northern Israel. So he's having a, a wide impact as well as um, a deep one. And I think this is important to note for us. If you're anything like a typical Londoner, then perhaps you're not really interested in Jesus. You might think of him as an in- influential teacher or a, a nice guy, but he's not someone who would affect our lives, not someone who, who would seek to let influence us. But actually, I would suggest that the authority that he speaks with and the power that he demonstrates, the actual bodily, physical healing at at his hands can't be ignored. This life and the willingness of some to give up their lives to follow him and the reaction of the crowds demand a response from us. If this is true, and I and many others here um, believe this to be an accurate account of what happened, then this activity, this power, and this authority need to be explained and understood. So we see this authority in teaching and we see this power in healing. But these both point to the third aspect that we see in verse 35 of what Jesus has been doing up to that point. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. What does this mean? Well, he's announcing to the world that he is God's king, that he is God in the flesh on earth, that he is sovereign over all things. In fact, in other parts of the gospel we hear that he that everything was made by him. He's announcing his rule, his kingdom. It's not a, a physical kingdom, not a kind of place of uh, a piece of land, but a kingdom of people who recognize him as king, as lord of their lives. And so when you, when you recognize him, you, make, you enter into his kingdom. When you recognize him as king, you enter into his kingdom. And this is a truly incredible claim. Not only does he teach with authority and act in his powerful, miraculous healings, he also claims to be God on earth. And this claim is immensely relevant to all of us. If it's true that Jesus is God in human form on earth, then this claim to be the ultimate authority, the king of the universe, extends to all people at all times, including contemporary Londoners, i.e. you guys. We're not just passive observers of a historical figure. We're invited into the story to take our place as his followers. And we all have a choice as to whether to accept his invitation to follow him, to let him take his rightful place as Lord of our lives. Now, as you consider whether to do this, then you'd surely want to know, what kind of man is this? Who calls me to follow him? What, what kind of man is he? And how can we know what kind of man he is? Well, I think one critical way to answer this question is to understand what's driving him. Why is he doing this? Think about this. If you're... Um, I don't know how many of you have been through job interviews. Probably some of you and the rest of you will go through job interviews, no doubt, um, at some point in your life. 
And in the job interview, they, they're interested in whether you can do the job, but they're also interested in why. Why do you want to do this job? They're interested in your motivations. And why are they interested? Because it tells them something about who you are. I was uh, interviewing someone for the... I worked for an education startup, and I was interviewing someone, and I asked him what... Um, I knew he was qualified for the job. I asked him why, and he said, you know, I, I believe in business as, um, that can be used for social good. And when he said that, I thought, yes, we want, you're, the, you're the kind of person we want here. Because I knew that that motivation chimed with my motivation, it chimed with the motivation of the people who work here. So when I saw that he... He was driven in the same way. That was what made me want to, want to hire him. And I think, think wider than that. Think about how we um, evaluate politicians. We want to know, why do they, why do they seek power? Why do, they rep, why do they want to represent us? And then when we know why, it influences greatly what we think of them. Think of the reactions um, of some, towards someone like Donald Trump, in, in the UK at least. Many people are turned off from him. They, they see that a naked political ambition, a desire just for power and attention for its own sake, and, we, and that doesn't attract us. Compare that with how we respond to someone like Jeremy Corbyn, who, whatever you think of his politics, whatever you think of his, his policies, most people warm to him as a person because they see a genuine desire um, to help people. To, uh, we kind of feel he's in politics for the right reasons. So what drives people, what, what, um, what leads them to doing the things they do is really important to understanding what kind of person they are. So to understand Jesus, we need to understand what drives him in, in serving and teaching and leading and healing and all the things he's been doing up to this point in Matthew's account of his life. And this encounter in these verses shows it so clearly, that Jesus' driver in all his public ministry is his compassion, his compassion for the crowd. And I'll, I'll repeat it for us. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, for they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Now, this isn't a kind of war, only a, a warm kind of oh, heart-stirring, oh, that's, that's nice. It's a gut-wrenching love that compels him to pursue his purposes in loving and serving and teaching, despite, and we'll see this as, as the rest of Matthew's gospel goes on, um, despite opposition to him. Even to the point where at the end of Matthew's gospel, and we were singing about it earlier, that Jesus' compassion compels him to die for humankind, that he um, suffers the shame and the indignity of, of dying on a cross, a uh, criminal's death, um, and later resurrection, but he takes the punishment on the cross for our sin. He undergoes that, that punishment on the, on the cross for our sin. An exchange takes place where he takes the, uh, the punishment for our sin and we can receive forgiveness and experience an eternal relationship with God. But he does that. He, he goes to the cross. He's compelled to the cross by compassion for us. Now, why does this compassion matter? Well, the first thing is he tells us what kind of person he is, what kind of leader he is. Jesus' compassion puts him as unique among powerful and influential figures in history for influencing and leading one of the largest movements in human history, not by force, but by love. And uh, Napoleon, who was a, a military leader from France who took over most of Europe at one point, puts it like this. I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did, what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, 
millions of men would die for him. So we see a real contrast here between Jesus' kingdom and any other earthly empire or group of people following someone, that his, his kingdom is, is grown by the, the power of the sharing his love with the world, and we'll, we'll go on to talk about that later, whereas other human empires like Napoleon's or these other military leaders are, are driven by force or the, the things like the threat of death. Even today, people who we think are some of the most influential figures, the, the leaders of, of, of huge multinational corporations, drive people through the the threat of losing their job or through the rewards they can get for doing their job, it's completely different to the way that Jesus leads um, through, ultimately through his love um, and the power of the Holy Spirit and everything else like that. But you see that his love is central to his kingdom. The second reason I think his compassion matters is because Jesus has this same compassion for London. We can know he feels this for London because the reason, the cause of his compassion is a universal observation. He has compassion on the crowd because he sees they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And I think this description of the crowd applies to contemporary Londoners too. Now, um, what what does this mean? What does it mean when when you say that Jesus sees that in them? He sees their surface condition, their obvious needs. In, In other passages, Jesus is described as having this compassion when he sees people who are sick and he prays for healing. Or he has this compassion when he sees people who are hungry and feeds the, and, uh, feeds the 5,000. So we see that he sees the surface needs, the felt needs with his compassion. So in this situation, we don't know the specifics. Perhaps he can see something in their manner and their countenance to see that they're harassed or distressed and, and helpless to change that. Some of us here will relate, will relate to the condition of the crowd. Uh, we might be feeling harassed at the moment, whether it might feel harassed by an employer who's getting you to work far too long hours for your, um, your health or, or longer hours than you'd like. Um, some of us might feel harassed in our relationships, might be having a, a difficult relationship at work or in a family or, or whatever, or we might just feel lonely in this um, busy and lonely city. So, so you might relate to the experience that, that, the crowd are um, that Jesus observes in the crowd. Some of us won't relate to this very much. Uh, we don't feel harassed and helpless. I think this is particularly true for a culture like ours where it's unusual for us to kind of express our needs like this. Um, there's almost a subtle pressure to tell ourselves that we're fine, that, that everything's great. Um, admitting things are difficult is almost like a sign of weakness. Um, I think back to a story from a friend of mine who was in work and um, he'd just broken up with his girlfriend, so he was, he was, cry- he was crying at work. Um, and his boss um, was in a room with his boss, and she said, look, you know, she kind of demonstrated some compassion, but she said, don't let anyone see this, particularly don't let the director see this, because he'll see, he'll see it as weakness. So m- there's a subtle pressure to kind of deny when we're feeling harassed and helpless. But if we're honest, probably all of us will at some point relate to these feelings of, of helplessness and of being harassed and distressed and unable to change our circumstances. If work matters to us most, we might feel our job is under threat or uh, we don't get the promotion that we want or we worry what people think of us. If relations, relationships matter to us, well, people are broken. Relationships break down. We, we lose people. We, um, they're not always as, as loving and, and as, as we'd like. And I think it's easy in our 20s, um, perhaps never to have experienced suffering, but I think it's very unlikely to be able to look back at the end of our lives and not experience that. Uh, the article I wrote for Salt, which is in your Bibles, about family bereavement, 
um, is a reminder of that, that we'll all experience suffering at some point. So we'll experience it when, like, when, when circumstances go against us and we, we can't control them. Um, and, and actually often the angst of 21st century Londoners is a desire and an attempt to try and control circumstances that we can't. We, we'd like to, um, things to be all, all settled and in control, but, but they're just not. Um, so we'll all relate to this feeling of being harassed and helpless at some point, like the crowd. And when we do that, we can be confident that Jesus has compassion for us in that. He sees our felt needs and cares for us. And I think the prayers that we heard earlier and the different circumstances people prayed through were a reflection of that feeling and that knowledge of his um, compassion and care for them in, their, in the dark times as well as the good times. But underneath those feelings, Jesus points to a wider universal problem And this is at the root of the feelings of being harassed and helplessness. Jesus tells us the problem behind the problem is that we don't know the good shepherd, that we're not experiencing being led by him, that either we don't follow Jesus, we don't allow him to rule and reign in our lives. I also think this is relevant to Christians, where you say, look, I have, I do want Jesus to rule and reign in my life, I want him to have control, but we still don't always let him into every part of our lives. We don't always allow that that reign and that rule in every part. So what does this picture then of a sheep without a shepherd tell us about that? What does it mean? What does that look like? And a number of times in the Bible, we get a picture of God as shepherd and people as, their sheep, as his sheep. There's three things I want to draw out very quickly. One is God is your good shepherd. We heard in the psalm earlier that Jocelyn read out, and we've seen it in Jesus' character, that God cares for us. He has a role in our lives to lead and protect us. Jesus is describes himself as the good shepherd elsewhere in the accounts of his life. And he draws a distinction between himself and others who might set themselves up as shepherds, as people who might lead us, but are actually more like thieves who come to kill and destroy us. And Jesus is unique in our lives, or is making the claim that he's unique in our lives as the authority that can be trusted, the, the ultimate authority that can be trusted. Compare him, for example, if you're in in work, to your employer for a moment. Now, I'm not having a go at employers, but they might say they've got your best interests at heart, but when push comes to shove, they've got a business to run. They've got their needs to meet, they've got shareholders' needs to meet, and so those will ultimately come first. I'm not saying they don't care, I'm just saying that no other authority in your life can claim to care about your needs and to love and protect you as the true good shepherd, Jesus. And I think the ultimate evidence of that, the ultimate thing that we can rest that claim on is Jesus' willingness to die on the cross for us. That he was willing to to die for you, literally. And and that is the best picture we have of his, that he can be trusted in his claim to love and care for us. The second thing, the second thing we can draw draw out from this is that you are a sheep. And this is not a flattering comparison. Sheep are not intelligent animals. Um, They need their shepherds to lead them. Uh, think of like just uh, sheep just wandering around a field. They could fall in a ravine or they could um, get stuck in a bush. Sheep are, need a shepherd to protect them and lead them. Uh, this is why in the Middle Eastern world, um, shepherds would literally sleep out with their sheep um, to protect them from those other influences. So he's, Jesus is saying here that we are like sheep, that he, we need our shepherd to protect us. And I guess this might feel difficult to you. I was looking at this uh, similar passage um, with, with a friend of mine who's not a Christian, and, and he said, I, I'm not sure I appreciate being compared to a sheep. Um, I said to him, well, you've been told all your life that you 
are, are great, that you can achieve everything you want, that you put your mind to. But the people who told you that forgot to mention to you that we actually make pretty poor moral choices, like all the time. And I, I, you know, probably you can look to your own life on this one. I, I can just think of daily examples where this is the case. I actually texted the same friend before, before the service and said, I'm, I'm preaching, can you think of some examples of moral failure in my life? And he came with a, back with a, a list. Um, but I won't, I won't go through that list now. But just... Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> Just, just put a video camera on my shoulder while I'm at work, and I'm sure you'll see areas that you'll think, is that really Christ-like? You know, that's all the case. I mean, just in my own marriage, I look at it and I say, I know I should love my wife, but actually I'm also really lazy. I rarely, if ever, get up and make the tea in the morning, even though I know that Jen appreciates those kind of works of service. So, in fact, if you, do need, if you don't think that you're a moral failure, if you don't see this and you think, I'm a good person, if you don't see your own selfishness, just get married, and then, <laughs> and, then, and then either you will start seeing it pretty soon and your spouse will start showing that to you. Um, Jen doesn't actually, but anyway, sorry. Um, <laughs> um, so I fail to make good moral choices. I do things even though I know that they're wrong. And in Isaiah 53, it uses the same picture to describe this. It says, we like sheep have gone, I think we like sheep have all gone astray. We don't know what's best for us, and we have a tendency to make bad choices. So the third implication, then, is if, he's, if he is our good shepherd, and we are like sheep who go astray, the third implication is that we need our good shepherd to lead us. And this is the fundamental observation that Jesus makes about all of us that applies to each person. Um, and when we don't have that, when we're not led by a good shepherd, we end up making bad choices and experiencing the consequence of that. When we do follow him, we experience the good benefits of his rule. And the psalmist from the psalm that we heard earlier puts it like this. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. So you get that picture of a shepherd who leads his sheep to the, the water that they need, to the green pastures that they need. So we see a picture of God leading us to the good places, a picture of the joy and the peace of a life lived with Jesus in control and experiencing his loving care. Now, I'm not saying we don't experience suffering. And again, the article that we, that we, um, that's in your Bibles is an indication that we will all experience suffering, Christian or not. But in that suffering, I think Naomi captured this in her prayer, we, will, we still experience the presence of our loving shepherd. Now, I tangibly experienced this in my own life, and I have in a transforming way. I remember when I became a Christian, I started to understand the truth that I was cared for and uh, led by my good shepherd. And this love, which I hadn't earned, became the most significant thing in my life as I started to follow Jesus while I was at university. And it transformed kind of the way I approached everything. So um, it changed the way I approached my work. Uh, Previously, I'd always sought to be the best, in part to be respected and liked by others. But as I came to know Jesus, my good shepherd, and I realized that I didn't need to live for the approval of others because I was already loved by God. And this meant I no longer had to obsess about my work, trying to be the best. Instead, I could learn to enjoy it and, um, and do my work with him. So this profound truth, the love and care of our good shepherd, has the potential to utterly transform your life. So this has huge implications for us. Firstly, if you're not a Christian, this is fantastic news, that there is an invitation for you to follow and accept him as your good shepherd, to see his authority, to see his claim to be 
king of the whole universe, to be God, and to recognize that. To ask and receive forgiveness. We've talked about the cross, the idea that even though we haven't always um, recognized him, a shepherd in our lives, even though we've ignored him and gone astray, that we have an invitation to um, receive his love and forgiveness. And thirdly, to submit to his reign, to let him be our good shepherd. Now, if you're already a Christian, then I guess the question for us is, where are we not always following that in our lives? Where are we not following the good shepherd? Where are we not allowing him to reign? Um, I can think of points in my life as a follower of Jesus where there are certain aspects, whether it be my relationships or whether it be my friendships or we talked, touched upon my work, where I haven't always allowed Jesus to reign in that part of my life. Well, that means I haven't always allowed him to have control. I haven't, um, I've said, kind of, I want to do this my way. I haven't trusted him to do it his way. Um, so that's probably just a question to meditate on and think about when we receive communion. Um, and when you're feeling harassed and helpless, do you know that you can bring those things to him, those things, those causes of being harassed and helpless, knowing that he is your good shepherd? I'm convinced that much of the, the problems of the Christian life are when we don't recognize that, when we don't realize that he is our good shepherd and we tend to get anxious or worry or, or just kind of try and solve these problems on our own. So then thirdly and finally, I want to really focus on the implications of this. What does this mean for the world? What does it mean if our central problem is our lack of relationship with Jesus, that we don't know him and haven't allowed him to be our good shepherd, and that we don't experience his care? If this is the case, then also, what is the plan to change this? Or better yet, what is Jesus' plan for the world in light of this? And we see this in the last part of the passage that we're looking at today. When he said, then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus recognizes, he, he tells us really clearly the, the fundamental problem of the world, not knowing their good shepherd, and then sends out his disciples, his followers, to solve that problem, to go and tell people, um, to share him with others, to go and tell him, people about his compassion and about the good shepherd that they don't know. And actually throughout then chapter 10 and, and kind of going on from this, we see this whole passage and a part where Jesus gives instructions to the disciples of how to do this. So this is, that, that's why Jesus goes on to send out his disciples. And if you're a Christian then, this has huge implications for us. We have to ask ourselves, have we grasped our master's plan for the world? His plan to use us as his means to spread his love in the world and to reach the world through us. In fact, I think, to be honest, this whole thing intimidates most of us, doesn't it? You know, if we're Christians here thinking about trying to share his love with the world, trying to go out into the harvest field to use the picture that Jesus uses here. We find it difficult, we feel it's impossible, we, we don't know how to do it, we don't feel up for it. Um, it just feels uncomfortable to us. So the, uh, I think there's three really brief encouragements we can take from this passage. Things to help us in that as we grapple with, with going out into the harvest field. The first thing is Jesus' compassion for the world. I think the way Jesus sees the crowd is an utterly different way that we might see the world. When you go onto the tube in the morning, if you're on your way to work, on your way to university... Um, what do you see? Do you see a group of commuters who are bustling and jostling and people to get out of your way? Or do you see the same crowd that Jesus sees in this passage, a group of people who are harassed and helpless and whose central problem is they don't know their good shepherd? 
I'm convinced that when we start to see the crowd, when we start to see our fellow Londoners with the same eyes that Jesus sees them in this passage, it will change the way we feel about wanting to share his love with the world. So if you find yourself not really excited about the fact that um, God is calling us to take his love to the world, then I would really say start here. Start with asking Jesus each day for his compassion for the world, seeing the people who he loves as people who don't know their good shepherd. Um, that's the first thing to say, and I, I really encourage maybe to think about praying uh, for, like for a few people each day, if there's a kind of practical way of doing that, um, that you might see them as the, as the sheep without a shepherd. The second thing, the second encouragement we can take from this ver- these verses is that it's actually Jesus' harvest. It's not, it's not our harvest. It says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to send out, laborers in heaven, um, send out laborers into his harvest. So we have a responsibility, we have a role, we are the means by which God has called um, to transform his world, but he will accomplish his purposes. And I just think about the promise, for example, in Acts uh, 1, 8, that, um, of the Holy Spirit, that it's not something we do alone. When we go and think about trying to help our fa- friends or our colleagues to follow Jesus, as we think about sharing his compassion with the world, it's not something that we do in our own strength. So in Acts 1.8, it says, you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you um, and talks about the idea that they will then go on to be witnesses in the world. It's almost like they need the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. In fact, that is, that's the case. They need the Holy Spirit's power. If you think about the way the disciples, when Jesus left them um, at the end of the Gospels, they're, um, they're scared, they're worried, and then if you see the change after the power of the Holy Spirit has, has come upon them, they, there's a totally different way. They're, they're bold and they're willing to go out into the world. So if you do feel like you lack courage to be involved in the harvest, to be involved in going out into the world and sharing his compassion, then the second thing I would say is ask God for his help. Ask him to fill you with his spirit and to give you the boldness and courage you need for, the, um, for this calling. Um, and remember that God will accomplish this through you. And the third thing, the best, I, I think just what is a fantastic promise that is so easy to forget, is that the fields are ripe for the harvest. It says again, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The harvest is plentiful. If you're a Christian walking around London today, I don't think you really think or feel that London needs, that has these spiritual needs, that has a need for a relationship with God. People feel, look pretty secure, pretty all together. Why would they, um, why would they need him? Um, but I, oh, sorry, why would they need him? And they don't really feel it. There's not, there's not a spiritual desire out there. But actually, this, this promise here in this verse is as we go out into the harvest field, that the harvest fields are plentiful. And I think part of the reason we don't experience this is because we've almost accepted it. So if you accept it's not, if it's true that there aren't, there aren't people out there who want to know Jesus, there aren't people out there who have spiritual needs, then you won't take active steps to share. And if you don't take active steps to share, then you'll never see that there are people out there who want to know him or have a spiritual desire, who have spiritual hunger. And so we can kind of find ourselves paralyzed in inaction. But as we take steps, and that's, I've, I've experienced that in, in, in my walk with Jesus. There are times when I've just not really been sharing and I just think no one around me is open, no one around me is interested. But as I take little steps, whether it be just to start, if you, for example, if you're at work and have never told people that you're a Christian, to take little steps, start to do that. If, as I start to ask questions, well, what do you think about Jesus? What's, do you have a, a, a religious background? 
Or even as I start to share little things, like to start to share my story, as I take those little steps each day, I find I see and I encounter people who do have a spiritual hunger, who were there all along, even when I wasn't sharing, and sometimes in the most unlikely places. Um, I think about my colleague from a Sikh background, and um, he was leaving us, so he was leaving the, the workplace. He, he about, I think he was about eight weeks while he was working with us. And I was his boss, and I thought, I, I kind of you know, owe it to him to just give him some kind of career advice. You know, I think, I, I think it'd be nice to kind of give it, because he wasn't leaving for any, any other job. So I thought, I want to help him just think about that. So I said, OK, let's, let's go out for um, lunch, and we'll talk about... Uh, I just want to kind of talk about... Um, work and stuff like that, or I don't think I really told him. Anyway, so um, we went for lunch, and actually, he thought we were going for lunch to talk about spiritual things, and he was really enthusiastic. He was like, yeah, okay, let's, I want, let's have a chat about who God is and things like that, and I was really surprised. You know, I, I, up to that point, you know, he kind of talked a little bit, but there was nothing in I really could have believed about, um, nothing in our conversations up to that point where I would have said, this guy really wants to know about Jesus, but he was actually really up for talking about it, and um, so it just kind of shows us sometimes that we're not always... We're not always seeing the fields are ripe for the harvest. We don't always believe that. And so I really, again, want to challenge you um, just to ask Jesus for that faith, to believe and trust his promise here, that the, the, the harvest is plentiful. Um, and that's really then to bring us down to one application of that. That's, this is why we're doing salt. You know, it may seem utterly perverse um, to go and take a few hundred or thousand leaflets out to Waterloo Station and give them out. And, um, you know, we just, what, what are you doing? How are you going to have a dent in London's um, spiritual needs? But actually, already as we do this, we found, um, already we see responses from people. Uh, yesterday, someone contacted me out of the blue on Facebook, sent me a message about the article that you've seen. Um, we had someone tweet about us. We, it's, it's amazing that just as you, and in fact, the first time Andrew did it, the first time, first article, one of Andrew's friends from school got, um, got in touch with him and said it really resonated with him. So as we start to push the back, um, kind of, break the sound barrier, start to step out in faith. We see that there are people there whose God is preparing, who have spiritual hunger. Um, so this, we're not saying salt is by any stretch of the imagination the only um, thing you're doing, and we, we don't want to stop for a moment people um, sharing and bringing Jesus' compassion into their own context. But this is one thing that you could do, and so the ways you could get involved, you could... Um, we are, people were asking, people want to write articles for us. I know some... Um, so people can write articles for it. Um, you could join us on Friday morning, um, giving it out. We start about quarter past eight, run to about 9.30. So some people just come from like 8.15 to 8.45 or whatever. Um, so come and help us hand it out, or you could um, share it on Facebook or, or send it to a friend. So, and you've got an example there today. It's just one little application point as we start to think about going out this plentiful harvest. So then in summary then, there is good news for all of us. Jesus has compassion um, for you in your felt needs if you're feeling harassed and helpless here. He is the solution to your greatest need, that he is the good shepherd that you need in your life leading you, and that he's promised his spirit to us, and he's promised he, that he will accomplish his harvest and that um, the harvest field is plentiful.